Have you ever been to see a Broadway play? This would be the audience participation portion. Have you ever been to see a Broadway play? Okay, some of you have, great. Well, I, I have been to see one as well in person. And um, when, when Kim was pregnant with Sophie, uh, we had the opportunity to go see the play Wicked at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. And I, I've got to be totally honest with you, uh, I was not at all excited about it. Not looking forward to it. Uh, I, I am not really the biggest Wizard of Oz fan. Um, I apologize if that changes the way you view me. Um, but I just, it just wasn't a thing that I enjoyed growing up. Um, but long, long story short, because my wife was a big fan, I went to go see Wicked at the Fox. Um, and long story short, I, it was one of the most fun things I've ever done in my life. I enjoyed it so much. I am a huge fan of learning the backstory behind things. And if you're not familiar, Wicked is the backstory of how, like, the Wicked Witch of the West and Glinda the Good Witch and how all those things happened and, and, and how those, those people got to where they were in the story. Um, but it was fantastic. What really sold it for me was that it has an incredible soundtrack, incredible soundtrack to the play Wicked. Um, one of my favorite songs is the song called Defying Gravity, and it's when the Wicked Witch learns to fly for the first time, and she's talking about how she's not going to let anyone but her plot her own course in life, and, um, and it, there's this, like the crescendo of it, the kind of the climax of the song is uh, she sings, nobody in all of us, no wizard that there is or was is ever gonna bring me down. Cut to black, right? Cut to black. That really wasn't that good. That wasn't worthy of those applause. Um, but it's like cut to black, intermission. And I was left wanting more. I was like, no, what? Is it over? It can't be over yet. That's, I had never been to a play before, so I didn't know intermission was a thing. And so it was like, it was, I was left wanting more. And so you're probably thinking, where in the world is he going with this? Well, I'm glad you asked. So today, we get to see a little bit of an intermission in the book of Judges. At the end of chapter 9, there's this cut-to-black moment where the people of God um, have just experienced this incredible craziness that was being led by Abimelech, and it cuts to black at the end of chapter 9. And at chapter 10, the beginning of it is this intermission it's a moment for us to catch our breath. And I don't know about you, but after the story of Abimelech, I needed a moment to catch my breath. It was a crazy story. Abimelech was not a good guy. He was evil, and he did bad things, and he led the people of Israel in a bad way. There are two types of people during an intermission. The first type are the people where it cuts to black, and they go, cool, I'm going to go grab some popcorn or something to drink. You guys want anything? I'm going to go. I'll see you later. I'm not one of those people. The other people are those who take a moment and reflect on what they just experienced. When it cuts to black in Wicked, I'm sitting there going, wait, so like, she was with this, and then they connected, and they went and did this thing, and we, I, I got to think about and process what I just saw. And that's hopefully who you will be today as we look at this intermission in the book of Judges, that I want us to take a moment and reflect on what we've experienced up to this point in the book of Judges. So let's take advantage of this transitional moment in Scripture. Turn with me to Judges chapter 10, if you've got a copy of the Word. But today, I want us to, to 
look or, or take a moment to reflect because we're going to be faced with a jarring question that we must answer. And the question that we must face today is this. What happens when God's people become their own worst enemy? What happens when God's people become their own worst enemy? You're going to see the answer to that in this passage today. But we begin Judges chapter 10, and the people of Israel are not looking for grace. They're not looking for anything from God. They aren't looking for mercy. They're not looking for deliverance. All they are worried about is themselves. However, that is exactly what God gives them in the form of two barely mentioned leaders in the book of Judges. We get to see a glimpse of what life could be like if God's people were just willing to live in obedience to what God commands. So look with me at Judges chapter 10, starting in verse 1. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo. Great names there. A man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel for 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kaman. So after the time of Abimelech, Israel was in need of saving. And Tola rises to do just that. The passage says that Tola rose to save Israel and that he judged Israel for 23 years. Now, the language that we see here, if we were to, to have the Hebrew, the language that's used here is very reminiscent of another judge that we've already talked about in the book of Judges. Deborah rose to save Israel. The exact same words are used of Deborah, that Deborah rose to save Israel and that she would sit under the tree and judge Israel. So God had raised up another judge to save and lead Israel the way that Deborah did. And Tola saved Israel from the disastrous effects of Abimelech by providing a period of stability and peace. And while Tola may have not had this illustrious career that we have chapters and chapters about in the book, he does leave Israel better than he found it. And that's something to be remembered for. Would you agree? He left it better than he found it. But the question is, who's the enemy here? Who's the enemy that Israel or that Tola saves Israel from? Well, the, the first thing that we see here in this passage is that God's mercy comes unexpectedly. If you're taking notes, write that down. God's mercy comes unexpectedly. Because Tola saved Israel from itself. God's people had completely abandoned him. They had chosen to be led by a man who was not chosen by God. Abimelech chose himself to be the leader. God's people need a leader who will rescue us from ourselves, from our failings, from our ambitions of our hearts that are going to lead us in directions that God does not want us to go. We have to be saved from that. So what God allowed Tola to achieve in his time is the gift of peace. It's mercy that God showers on the Israelites. And, and the 23 years that he um, serves and judges Israel and leads them in peace, he gives as a gift to Jair, who leads Israel for another 22 years in peace. Jair was born into good times, and he gets to lead in good times. 
It's important to remember that the period of the judges wasn't all crisis and turmoil. And I think it's easy to lose sight of that fact because there's some crazy stories in the book of Judges. We're going to dive right into one here in just a second. But you could look at the book of Judges and just say, man, it was decade after decade after decade after century after century of just chaos. But it wasn't all that way. I mean, right here in chapters or in uh, verses one through five, we have a 45 year period of peace. We're told at several points through the book of where the land had rest, but we have no details of what life was like during that period. I mean, think about it. It says, he judged for 23 years, then he died, and he was buried. Tola, life, done. Jair, he judged Israel for 22 years, then he died, and he was buried. Not a whole lot of details there, right? However, we need to ask the question, what do we learn from Tola and Jair? What is there for us to see here? Well, we learn of the sheer grace and mercy of God. Israel needed rest from the chaos of Abimelech's rule, and suddenly there it was. It was something God brought about by bringing Abimelech's reign to an end, and Tola and Jair give Israel an opportunity for healing. And we need that from time to time, do we not? We need an opportunity for healing because life is difficult. We face hard situations. A lot of times we put ourselves in those hard situations, but God in his mercy offers us healing. Tola and Jair were the judge saviors that Israel wasn't even asking for, and yet God, in his mercy, sends them. So has God ever saved you from yourself? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you have made dumb mistakes or bad choices, and God has to save you from yourself? Has God ever sent you exactly what you need Exactly at the time that you needed it, even when you weren't asking for it. I've experienced that in my life. I've experienced that just within the last week. I've experienced that. And it doesn't have to be this gigantic, life-changing moment. It could just be God in a moment when you are about to spiral off into chaos. He says, hey, remember me. Or hey, remember how much I love you. Or hey, don't forget that I did this for you. I'll be faithful to do that again. God reminds us of how much he loves us, and he saves us from ourselves. We need to remember God's mercy is giving us an intermission in our lives to catch our breath. God shows us his mercy and grace in allowing us to catch our breath from time to time. Amen? And it's good that he gives us that because it typically only lasts for a moment. And it only lasted for a moment here in chapter 10. Look at what happens in verses 6 through 9. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, let me remind you what just happened at the end of verse 5. They are experiencing a 45-year period of peace and prosperity. Things are good in the land. God is good. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And 
And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. But by now, we are familiar with Israel's cycle, are we not? That they relapse into idolatry after periods of deliverance and rest. That things are good, Israel strays, things get bad, Israel cries out for help, God saves them. Things get good, Israel strays. It's that cycle. We've seen that over and over throughout the book of Judges. However, we see here in this passage that their propensity for doing what is evil in the sight of God is going from bad to worse. They, they turn back to the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Remember that that was the gods that um, they were serving when Gideon was a leader. The, um, the, that was why Gideon got the name Jerubbaal, that he struggles with Baal. So they turn back to those gods, but they go even further. They add to Baal and Ashtaroth the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. They are fully giving themselves over to every false god they can get their hands on. They're saying, what, uh, Philistia, you guys got some gods? We'll take those. Sidon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring them in. We'll, we'll worship those idols too. Every surrounding country sends their idols into Israel because Israel asks for them. They want them, and God allows them to go. But there's really this sort of special appropriateness to what happens. Israel chooses to serve the gods of these other nations, and now they will pay for it by being oppressed by those nations. And here's the thing that we see here. What we see is that idolatry leads to enslavement. Idolatry leads to enslavement every time. Israel worshipped the idols of another nation, the nation ended up oppressing the nation of Israel. In this instance, God gives them over to be oppressed specifically by the Ammonites and the Philistines. There's always a high price to pay for sinning against God. And in this case, the cost is going to be very high, and there is no quick fix. I mean, think about it. The decision that God's people are making here create an enemy that they have to deal with for centuries to come. The Philistines are going to be a thorn in the side of the Israelites for centuries after this. I mean, remember, Goliath was, was a Philistine, right? And so that's hundreds of years from now. That's not like next week from this story. It's for decades and centuries after this. The Philistines become an adversary for a large portion of the Old Testament following this because the people of Israel have desired something other than God. Remember last week, um, we've talked about the fact that the human heart has not changed much since the time of Judges. Derek reminded us that the object of our affection becomes the object of our worship. And what the Israelites have um, desired is all of these other gods, these little idols, these trinkets, these things that they think they can control. And they've desired those things, and they have now become the object of their worship. The sin of idolatry will always lead to oppression in our lives. The people of God have, in effect, become their own worst enemy by making these choices. They have chosen to turn away from the one thing that would save them and that would bring them peace in the land. They willingly turn away from God and turn toward false gods that they found all around them. And we'll see that the consequence is overwhelming. Look at what happens in verses 10 through 16. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Remember, they have all these armies that are coming in. They're severely distressed. People of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. 
And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Mayanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So again, we, we know what's coming next. We know the cycle that things got really bad because of dumb decisions the people of God had made. And they cry out to God. However, they're in for a shock this time. God does not immediately forgive them and answer their cry for help. He tells them that he won't save them. And for them to go ask the gods that they've been worshiping to help them. God's saying, I, I know this cry. I know what's happening here. You are crying out to me because you have consequences facing you. And you want me to remove the consequences of what you've done because you've chased after these false gods. Well, I'm not helping you this time. Go ask those false gods and see if they'll help you this time. Because I'm not doing it. The people of God are only sorry for the consequences of their sin, but they aren't actually sorry for the sin. And here's the thing that we can learn here, is that the consequences of our sin can be overwhelming. The consequences of sin can be overwhelming. And it's possible for us to turn from idolatry in an idolatrous way. And that's exactly what's happening here. And let me explain what, what I mean by that. It's possible... For what's happened here, that the people of God are turning away from their idolatry and saying, God, we're making an idol of our comfort. So God, please, we'll get rid of these idols, but just take away all these consequences that, we've, that we're facing because of our idols so that we can idolize our comfort. You see what I'm saying there? God, we don't want what's happening in our country to happen, so help us here, help us get this out of the way so that we don't have to worry about it anymore. However, God and Israel seem to be at an impasse. Their relationship is on the brink of complete breakdown, and there is no priest, there's no prophet, there is no other mediator in sight. There is none mentioned here in this chapter. Tola and Jair have died, and they have been dead for 19 years at this point, and they are without a leader. Is reconciliation even possible? Does Israel have a future? What's going to happen? Well, the Israelites panic. And in their panic, they actually repent. Look at what it says again in verse uh, 15. Because God tells them, I'm not helping you anymore. Well, go, go talk to your false gods and see if they're going to help you. Verse 15. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. They confess their sin and plead with God for mercy. They actually get rid of all the false gods. It says that they put them out. Before this, it had only said that they turned away from their false gods in the book of Judges. They kept them in the closet for an, in, for an insurance policy, if you will. Well, if things are not going the way we want, we'll pull out this little island. We'll pray to that in the future. But this time it says they actually put them out of the country, that they get rid of them and they begin serving the Lord. This here in chapter 10 is actually the most impressive show of repentance in the whole book on behalf of the Israelite people. It is the most impressive repentance action that we see. 
But we see that God can see right through it. This is one of the saddest passages in the Bible, in my opinion, that we are not told that God sees what they do, that he sees their repentance. We are not told that he relents and that he forgives them or that he raises up a judge to save them. But what does it say at the end of verse 16? He became impatient over the misery of Israel. In other words, it wasn't their repentance that moves God. It's their misery that moves God. He became tired of watching his people suffer, and he just couldn't bear to see it continue. It's going to be a while before we see what he will do to end their misery. But in this moment, see how far away the people of God have gotten from God. That they are not actually repentant. That God doesn't forgive them when they ask for it. He says, I'm done with you guys. I'm done with this. And so he just says, I don't want to watch you suffer anymore. So I'm just going to make this stop. That's sad. It's horrible. God's own people, he doesn't forgive them because they're so far gone. However, at least here, there is a glimmer of hope at the end of this story. The people of God were overwhelmed with the consequence of their sin. And the same is still true for us today. When we sin, the consequences will overwhelm us. If we don't turn back to God and repent, We must run to him and throw ourselves on his mercy and his grace. Let's look at the final two verses here. We're um, transported into this other scene really quick. It seems like these things don't belong together. Look at verse 17. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped at Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? Who shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead? So we're transported quickly to another scene. It's this battle scene where the armies are lined up against each other. And the problem for Israel is that there's nobody to lead the fight. They don't have a judge or a king to lead their fight. They're looking at each other going, I mean, we lined up, but what are we supposed to do now? Usually God sends somebody, like there's a guy coming in that's going to say, hey, here's what we go do. The problem is that there's no one there because God has said he won't save them, and none of the Israelites are capable of leading them to fight. There is no Savior found among them at the moment. It's a dark hour for the people of God. They don't know what to do. And the fact of the matter is that for us, apart from Christ, we find ourselves in the exact same position, that we are hopeless, that we are without a Savior apart from Christ. But here's the thing that we can celebrate this morning. Jesus arrives in our darkest hour. Jesus arrives in our darkest hour. We get to celebrate this glorious truth this morning. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still running from God, while we were in our darkest hour, Jesus came to be our Savior. He came to lead the fight. He came as the judge and Savior that we need even though we weren't asking for him. Even though we weren't looking for him, he showed his love and his grace and his mercy for us by doing what we couldn't do ourselves. 
And the glorious thing is that unlike the Israelites and judges, we don't have to wonder who will lead the fight. We don't have to wonder who will lead us. Jesus came and rescued us from ourselves when we were acting as our own worst enemy. Jesus did that for us. So we come back to our question from earlier. What happens when God's people become their own worst enemy? Unfortunately, the jarring answer here for the Israelites in chapter 10, nothing. God doesn't do anything. We can't do anything to get ourselves out of the prison of sin that we put ourselves in. We need someone to intervene on our behalf. We need a Savior to come and rescue us. And thank God that we don't wonder, like the Israelites, who will fight for us. Jesus is the one who fights for us. And allow me to let you in on a little secret. He already won the fight. And we get to share in that victory. And I don't know about you, but that makes me want to celebrate. That makes me want to praise our God. That makes me want to shout his name, Yahweh, at the top of my lungs. Because he won the fight, and he lets us share in the victory. And so let me ask you today, are, are you looking to something other than God to be your Savior? Have you looked to a job or people or anything else, fill in the blank, to be your Savior? Because it's going to fall flat on you. I hate to break that to you. Are you finding yourself floundering in sin and despair? Do you find yourself at a point where you don't know what to do? Well, let me share with you today that if you're in this room and you find yourself at that place, you can be saved from that today. Jesus stands ready to be your Savior and to fight the fight that you cannot fight yourself. Fall on His grace today. Let Jesus save you. If you are a follower of Christ, do you need to turn back? Do you need to say, God, I have placed something above you that doesn't need to be above you? This altar is open. There's no wall here. There's no barrier. You can come and pour your heart out to God and say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me, Lord. And he's quick to offer grace and mercy. And that's something to celebrate. We're going to pray. We're going to sing. Um, we're going to have some people down front here uh, that if you need to be uh, led into a relationship with your Savior, you could do that today. Don't spend another day running from God and relying on things other than Jesus to save you because they will not do it. They cannot do it. Only Jesus can. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this time. Thank you that we have your word. Thank you for the reminder that you love us more than we possibly could imagine. Father, I pray that in the next few moments, you would work and move Speak to our hearts, God. Break down the barriers. Help us to see you anew and afresh. And let us fall on your grace and mercy today. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together.